Okay, let's see if this works. Okay, I think we're on the air. Good. All right, it's six o'clock. It is hard-boiled time. We are going to talk about Mildred Pierce, part two, which we've been watching. Are you guys all getting ready for fall break? Yes. Are you ready to take a break? Do you guys leave campus for fall break? Are you going back up to Maine? Yeah, I am. Are you kidding me? I'm so excited. Yeah, you're excited. Now, how long is it going to take you to get to Maine? Well, I'm driving. Oh, I have someone driving me to D.C. Yeah. And then my flight leaves at 7. Oh, so and you're I have flying. to make a stop in New Jersey for some reason. And yeah. then go to Maine. So I leave at 7 and then land at 11. Well, that's good. You're flying now. Yeah, and the flight good. back is only like an hour and a half. It's brilliant. One stop. Good. So. Anyone else stops. doing anything fun, exciting? Going anywhere far away and... I live no. like 15 minutes away, so it's extremely anticlimactic. <laughs> <laughs> I go home all the time. I can walk home, but I'm very excited for fall break. So, right, I am excited. All right, but the fall break is not here yet. And as I promised, we're going to look at the end of the class at a kind of model for the midterm. Also, I'm going to bring this to your attention because it's going to be very useful. I'm going to make it required reading over fall break. It's very short. It's about five or six page. Um, Paul Bond, you know that name by now, right? He's like part of the class. The great <laughs> Paul Bond. Paul Bond Paul Bond actually pointed us to this Paul Schrader essay, which is a very short essay, and it's about five or six pages, and it lays out brilliantly the relationship between film noir and hard-boiled, and this is his theory about that, and I want you to read this. It's quick. It's a great list of films. Thank you to Paul Bond for recommending it. And it will actually give you a really good frame for some of the essays that we're going to deal with on the midterm. So it is not only recommended, it is required as we go into Thursday. And it's going to be a nice overview of a lot of what we talked about and put it in a kind of context that might be a little bit more accessible than Nairmore. Does that make sense? Okay, good. All right. Um, let's talk about Mildred Pierce, but then we're going to start watching a bit. There's been a lot of... You know, Mildred Pierce is a kind of a cultural icon. Her as a figure, um, not only between the film, which is in many ways more popular than the book. Um, uh, Joan Crawford got an Academy Award as Best Actress for the 1945 film, I think it was. Um, but also, as we talked about, it's an HBO miniseries. just came out last year. And it was done by Todd Haynes, who's actually a pretty famous director. He did, uh, he redid a famous Douglas Sirs film. Anyone see uh, All That Heaven Allows? No? That's a film where he kind of remade um, a famous Douglas Sirk film. And he's considered a, a very interesting director. He deals a lot with like queer and gay politics within his uh, films, and his films are usually pretty controversial. And it's interesting that he should choose Mildred Pierce. And that would be a very interesting, if someone wants to follow up and get the five-hour miniseries, be a very interesting kind of frame about how someone like Todd Haynes interprets Mildred Pierce. I was saying before class started, I watched a good part of it on Tuesday night after our class. And my problem with it is it's supposed to be a kind of religious um, retelling of the book, unlike the movie, which we'll see shortly. Um, and I found it's actually not. They completely leave out all of the, the sections about, uh, for example, Miss Turner and the hard-boiled interview, and the sexological um, advertisements. Like, that whole scenes, they're kind of really, you know, allotted with film. And I felt, for me, it lost a lot of the tenor of the original. The other thing I really didn't like, and this is interesting, is I didn't like the way the film colonized my idea of the reading. 
So when I have a very particular vision of Mildred Pierce's house in Glendale, of her yard, and once I start to go to a film and I see that, it really affects the way I imagine it. And so there's these kind of competing interpretations of the reading. And understood, this is this person's interpretation of the reading, right? And I've already done the reading, so I still have my own. But one of the things that film often does, especially when it's adapting a novel, and it's funny that all of Kane's most famous novels, Double Indemnity, uh, The Postman Always Rings Twice, and uh, Mildred Pierce, are in many ways more famous films. <laughs> and so oftentimes you'll come to the book well after you've seen the film, particularly during the 40s and 50s. So the question is, how do we deal with this kind of colonization of our imagination? So that's an interesting question to keep in mind when we're thinking about um, what film does and how film kind of adapts some of these classic novels. Um, but let's return to the book itself, and let's talk a little bit about Mildred Pierce. I actually have to grab my novel. Hey, Connor. And let's take a little bit, and then we're going to look at some of the... We're going to look at some of the actual film version uh -oh. well, I have my book over. Do you see my Mildred Pierce book over there? Keys mine. Yeah? That might yes. actually I might need it. My phone locked up. Oh, this could be devastating. Did I leave my book up? Well, actually, you know what? It's not devastating. It might be even a good thing. So where do we get up to at the last discussion? Everybody pull your books out. Where did we stop talking at the last discussion? Um, Anyone remember? Right after Ray's death. Right after Ray's death. Yeah. Okay. So we talked pretty much extensively, passage by passage, about some of the ways in which Kane was framing not only the cultural moment, but Mildred Pierce's position as a woman in that space, right? Her <coughs> searching for a job, her ultimate notions of kind of class, her not wanting to take the waitress job, but ultimately taking it. And then as we talked about, because of because Vita is crazy, she goes on to say, not only was I doing that to learn the business, but to start my own, which she then again goes on to do. So where do we particularly, anyone know the quote, what do we stop talking about on Tuesday? Where did we stop? I want to pick up after that. Wasn't it an argument between Vita and Mildred? Yeah, and tracing oh. those arguments. So let's... Let's look a little bit up and until someone pick out a passage based on their reading that they've outlined that they think is essential to the understanding of the larger theme in this book, whether it be about gender and Mildred Pierce as a woman, about questions of class, which we see all the time with people like Vita and Vita's relationship to the peasantry, right? We learn that she has Lottie or Letty following her in uniform. So give me an example of some of the kind of moments in the book you started to think about and you started to highlight that you think possibly are important. And explain to me why they're important. Because that's how I go about the class. I highlight in the margin things I found important about the book. What about you? What are some moments? Yeah, Barash. Um, the thing I was just talking about, um, there, was, there came to run show. What page? Oh, sorry, 134. 134. Okay. It's like the last sentence. There came torrential shaking sobs as at last she gave way to this thing she had been fighting off. A guilty leap in joy that had been the other child who, had, uh, who was taken from her and not beat her. <laughs> Brilliant. 
So what do we learn here? So Raj, you tell us. What do we learn here about Mildred? Um, she's really attached to Vita. She's attached to Vita. And we start seeing this in really weird ways as the book moves on. But this is kind of a sick moment in the book where she's crying almost with joy because it wasn't Vita who died. It was Ray. And that's kind of as a parent, which I am right now, to think that, you know, to cry in joy over one child dying over versus another. It's kind of a sick vision, right? I mean, this is not something where you'd be like, oh, yeah, sure. I'm glad this one died. I mean, this isn't like, I'm glad I lost that shoe versus this shoe, right? This is a child. So any moments where we start to see, this is kind of a particular moment, where we start to see this develop in almost really horrific terms as the book goes on. For example, Vita, there's these kind of moments towards the end of the book, again and again, where Mildred refers to whenever she hears anything about anyone else doing anything else with with Vita, there's this sick jealousy she talks about, right? And it's a jealousy that, you know, seems almost more than just a mother's protection, right? And I think you said it earlier, Faraj, before, what do we have between Mildred and Vita? An obsession. An obsession. I mean, there is a kind of sick, unhealthy obsession between Mildred and Vita. And, you know, it, almost to the point where you start to wonder, um, is that really Mildred, who's a very strong woman and proves herself strong throughout the book? She has one flaw, or one Achilles heel, right? <laughs> you said it, but it's Vita. Okay, excellent. What's some other passages that you want to talk about that you think are important in the book? Yeah, well, Brenna. Kind of, kind of jumps ahead to 168 um, when Monty and Mildred first start fighting. He says, "Your page gigolo thanks you." I don't think that was very nice. It's true, isn't it? Is that the only reason you come here? Not at all. Come what may, swing high, swing low, for better or for worse, you're still the best piece of tail I ever had or ever could imagine. Bam. That was a, I have that outlined too. Yeah. Why? Why did you pick it out? Well, um, well, you told us to start looking for like the the like female role or whatever and how it portrays in dialogue and I feel like this kind of exhibits like how people view her, but how she's like trying so hard to change it because you know she's got like the pretty face and the nice legs or whatever, but she's also a working girl. And then, um, and then I think it also kind of just tails into how she like sponsored him for so long with the tens and the twenties because even though she strives to be so independent, she's very caught up on people being dependent on her, like Vita and Monty. I mean, really, you said a couple of great things. One of the things you want to come down is this idea of her as a working girl, right? What do you mean by that? Like, she's a working girl. Well, she didn't start off that way. Like, she didn't intend for it to be that way when she married Bert, but then, you know, things fell through with him, and so she was kind of like like the backbone of the family, and since then has had to, like, had to integrate from just being, like, a household working mom to, like, an actual earning working mom. Yeah. And really, the sole breadwinner, right? I mean, Bert, for all you might love him towards the end of the book, he's completely ineffectual, yeah. right? He can't earn a cent. I love him the whole time. He's good, but he's weak compared to Mildred. There's no two ways about it. He dreams, but that's all. So is Monty, though. Yeah, but Monty doesn't do it. We'll talk about Monty yeah. at length. But another thing, Monty talks about her as a piece of tail, mm -hmm. which is probably one of the great insults, right? And that only gets worse. 
But this idea of the working girl, anyone know what else, when you term someone else a working girl, what that refers to? Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. what? A prostitute, right? And what do you make of that? Talking about the idea of a working girl. You can use that chair and move that bag. That's fine. That one right there. That's fine. But the idea of the working girl as a prostitute, how would that fit in in this framework? And really, the only thing you can do as a working girl is what? Sell what? Yourself. Yourself, which, you know, is completely wrong. But think about where the etymology of that term working girl as a slur comes from. And how people like not only Monty consistently looks her in that way, but even her own daughter. Going back to the point where she wouldn't take a job with a uniform. right? This idea of being demarcated as a working girl because of particular things like the shoe, the uniform. And it's interesting that the woman who she has the interview with when she's thinking for a second about becoming the servant, right? Mm-hmm. And that's for that quick moment and then she runs out. But she, and then that's when they say that Vita, you and your kids would have to live in the back. That, that woman comes back into the narrative. She's the director's wife. That's right. Let's talk about her for a second and this idea of the working girl and kind of move back because I do think that when does the director's wife show back up in the novel and why? Um, when uh, Vita's, it's, well, you don't know it yet, but it's when Vita's saying that she or she's faking her pregnancy to, uh, to get money out of her son. <clears throat> this is a rough, I mean, you kind of, I don't know how you guys felt about this, but I always felt like this. I always felt like when I first read this book, this is like my third time reading the book, but the first time I read it, I was like, okay, Vita's, I love you, mommy. You're right, mommy. I'm going to come back to you, Mommy. Things are going to be good, Mommy. It never really works out, right? Like, always she just one-ups it. And here's the point where, as you said, Vita basically did what? She had sex with a director's son who's coming into a lot of money. She knew this. And what is she saying to him, basically, and the family? I'm going to have your child. And... Who can find the page? Let's find the page because I love when Vita, when basically Mildred Pierce confronts her on it and Vita says something to the effect of whether I'm pregnant or not is purely my opinion. (laughs) No, it's, you know, pregnancy is actually a biological fact. It's not an opinion. But there's this interesting moment where we see Vita talking about this idea of her pregnancy to this in relationship to getting money as an opinion. Um. 228 where she's talking to her about it. And where's the point where she says this idea of an opinion? opinion. Yeah. So 228. I kind of like this not having a book. I think you guys do the work. Jessica, what do you got over there? Can you find it? No? You're not even looking for it? No? Not searching for it? You're hard out? What is the title? What is the beginning of that paragraph? Um, it starts off, Mildred took off her hat and stared at the cold, beautiful creature who sat down opposite her. Mildred took off her hat. Anyone find that in our version? Oh, yeah, it's on page 237. 237. Who wants to read that paragraph? 
Great, Sarah. Read it loud. <clears throat> Mildred took off her hat and stared at the cold, beautiful creature who had sat down opposite her, and who was now yawning as though the whole subject were a bit of a bore. The events of the last few days began ticking themselves off in her mind, particularly the strange relationship that had sprung up between Vita and Wally. The squint appeared and her face grew hard. Now I know what that woman meant by blackmail. You're just trying to shake her down, shake the whole family down for money. You're not pregnant at all. Mother, at this stage of the at this stage, it's a matter of opinion, and in my opinion, I am. Vita's eyes glinted as she spoke, and Mildred wanted to back down, to avoid one of those scenes from which she always emerged beaten, humiliated, and hurt. But something was swelling within her, something that began in the sick jealousy of a few nights before, something that felt as though it might presently choke her. Her voice shook as she spoke. How could you do such a thing? If you had loved the boy, I wouldn't have a word to say. So long as I thought you had loved him, I didn't have a word to say, not one word to blame you. To love is a woman's right, and when you do, I hope you give everything you have brimming over. But just to pretend to love him, but just to pretend you loved him to lead him on and to get money out of him, how could you do it? Merely following in my mother's footsteps. What did you say? Oh, stop being so tiresome. There's the date of your wedding, and there's the date of my birth. Figure it out yourself. The only difference is that you were a little younger at that time than I am now, a month or two anyway. I suppose it runs in families. Okay. Let's do that. Okay. Perfect. That's quintess quintessential beat. A, it's a matter of opinion whether you're pregnant. No, it's not, right? That's actually, you know, she's basically, she's extorting this guy. She's blackmailing him. The other part was the jealousy. They're talking, this comes up, that's that jealousy I was talking about. This jealous rage that Mildred has for Vita, in many ways because she can seem to never have Vita, right? It's like her relationship to Vita is always, seems to be leveraged by some sort of manipulation on Vita's part. And this is a perfect example of it. As soon as, you know, Mildred starts going after her, Vita, as calculating as smart as she is, does what? Turns it back on her. How old were you when dad got you pregnant? 17, exactly as Vita is. Were you legal? No. Where did it happen? We know it happened in one of those houses that they're in right now, right? The one that she put a restaurant in. She basically, yeah, she put a restaurant, and she basically turns the whole thing back on Mildred. It's basically your fault, Mildred, right? You're responsible for what I'm doing right now. And this is just classic Vita to the end. So there's that point, and I love that. And what's interesting, too, is Mildred still can't get over this question of class, right? When the director's wife comes to her, what's the first thing she thinks about? Anyone remember? She thinks she'll recognize her. She'll recognize her, and hence, and why would that Vita be a problem? Vita will find out that she almost took a job as a servant. It's the first thing she thinks about. Vita will find out, I almost took a job. This is a woman who's become not only successful, but actually wealthy. You know, she's a woman who's basically worked. And I love it. You talk about uh, Monty as a kept man, right? Remember early on in the book, um, uh, what's her name? The the neighbor again. Miss Gessler. Miss Gessler. Gessler. Yeah. Is it Lucy Gessler? Yeah. She says, "You want to? You think I need to be want to be a kept woman?" And Lucy says, "Yes." And it turns out, ironically, that who's kept in this book? Monty. She keeps like you talk about the twenties and tens <coughs> that she gives him, and then she starts resenting it. I had uh, I kept a quote that yeah. Vita said. <clears throat> she said, "What page you want?" Uh, one eighty-three. One eighty-three. In the middle, 
Uh, presently, however, words began to have meeting again, and she heard Vita saying, After all, Mother, even in his darkest days, Monty's shoes are custom-made. They ought to be. They cost me enough. That's what she said. <laughs> yeah, and that's the moment when she said, That ought to be. They cost me enough. What did Mildred, what did Vita not realize at that point? That she was his like, wealth isn't really real. Yeah, his wealth isn't real, and it's actually Mildred who was keeping him. So not only did Mildred not be want to be a kept woman, she was actually keeping Monty around to please Vita. Talk about a sick love triangle, right? Like Monty becomes this kind of boy toy for Mildred to almost, you know, have a relationship with Vita through proxy, right? Whenever he's in the picture. She almost becomes happy, and Vita comes back into her life. And we realize at the end why, right? I mean, there's a kind of hardcore realization. Now, let's talk about the ending a bit. You said, Lauren, you were confused, right? Let's talk about the ending. Why were you confused? How did this book end, in your idea? Well, I, was just, I guess I was confused in the order, because they kind of jumped time a lot. So sure. It's really just kind of like jumpy. Well, that's a good point. How long, what period of time does this book take? From the like time 10, she's 27 to 38. she's 38. 38. So about 11 years, 10, 11 years. And it's roughly 1930 to 1940 or 41. So that's the time span. It's actually a long period of time. I think Vita goes from 10 to 20 years old over the course of the book. And it ends when she's 20. And let's talk a little bit. What happens at the end? For example, uh, Mildred walks in on Vita. And Mildred Monty. walks in on Vita. Back on the and Monty. Back on page two sixty eight. Yeah. On the uh, the last paragraph, it says. Uh, okay, two sixty eight. Let's go, Connor. Read it. Says it to Monty us. agreed to withdraw to the tack room as he called the place where he stored his saddles, bridles, and furniture from the shack with complete good humor. With more good humor, perhaps, than a husband should show at such a request. And I put on the side, I said, Vita and Monty are getting together. Yeah, Vita and Monty <laughs> do hook up. And I, was, I actually marked that, too, as that's a great point of foreshadowing that. You have any question what's happening? Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, throughout the book, it seems strange, right? Even when Vita was a young girl, yeah, her and Monty were always alone on the living room floor. Not to say anything happened, but there was this real relationship. And Monty was bringing up Vita to be a what? A lady, a society girl, right? And that's actually was always a weird thing about Monty and Mildred's relationship, is she was really never a part of the relationship. She just funded it. She was always working. You know, talk about that idea of the working girl. So on top of the question of gender, you have this real question of class, and how this question of class ultimately dooms Mildred Pierce. Because not only do we have the horrific realization when she walks in that Vita, her own daughter, is sleeping with her husband, but what is she also, she go, what is she going to Vita to ask for? Money. Yeah. Money. Right? She needs cash. For the first time ever. For the, yeah, and for 10 years she's built up an empire, and why has her empire crumbled? She's funding everything. She funds Monty's life. She doesn't even know funding. Life. Let's go, let's be specific about it. Why is she broke right now? Goes to all the concert stoppers. The I would say it's not the even theaters, the concerts. The Dresses parties up. every night. The parties every night. But what does she? She makes a plan to get Vita back. Monty. Oh. And his house. Monty. She yeah. buys Monty's house. And renovating it. And it's a fortune, right? And like at the time, it was twenty-five to thirty thousand dollars. Which, no, is it expen? I think for the thirties, post depression, that would be a very expensive house. You mm -hmm. consider close to a mansion. 
And not only that, but then they renovated it. And she started borrowing against her three restaurants, and she started to find herself in economic problems, right? And then we find Wally on the other side of the equation. He's the one who's working for the creditors now, and he wants his money. And so she's in a situation, right? She can't get the money unless she goes to Vita. Now, let's stop for a second. Why the hell does Vita have money? Opera. She's a what? What do they call it? A coloratura soprano. Yeah. She's this and that's who's what's the name of the uh, Italian teacher who's great. Sorry, compared to a I never snake, pronounced right? it right, even in my head. What's his name? It's, uh, Trevisi? Treviso. Treviso, yeah. yeah. He's basically understands Vita is what? She's this rare cult uh, I think it's called cult say it again. Cultura? Yeah. Colatura, I think it's Colatura, like color, Tura, soprano, which is this rare kind of operatic singer. And so it means that she's not only going to be very successful, she's one of the best and uniquest singers' voices in the world. So she has this unbelievable kind of like career ahead of her, right? Where people are offering her $500 a week just to sing a little commercial for some bean bread. It gets that high, she, uh, right? And she gets for she gets pissed for. off because she doesn't get that. So let's 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 stop a bit. So we have a couple of things filled in. Vita's got a career. She's actually extremely successful. She is a great musician after all. You know, we always thought she was just this kind of very attentive, working hard, but she is. She also has a relationship with her mother's husband. You know, problematic. But we also find that Mildred is going to her for money. And when she does, she finds Vita and Monty <coughs> in bed together. Now, who wants to, let's see a show of hands, because I don't want just a couple of people. Who wants to see, who wants to say what happens? What happens when Mildred sees Vita and um, Monty in bed together? Okay, who else? Michael, what happens? Well, I'm confused with the question. What's that? Um, are we voting on watching something? Or? No. Okay. I'll say something here, yeah. Now, re what happens when Vita sees, I mean, when uh, Mildred sees that Vita is sleeping with, with her husband? Who wants to bail Michael out? She strangles Vita. Brennan. She leaves at Vita which like made me really happy when she did that. Like, <laughs> finally, she leaves at Vita and she immediately goes to, to her voice, especially because I think right before that she made a mm. comment that's like, that would be very, very bad for my throat or my voice while she's yeah. smoking a cigarette. That's right. And but she's not inhaling it, she's just <coughs> puffing it. Yeah, so she, <laughs> she attacks her, goes for the throat, and then Monty tries to get her off. And goes, I think she went through it for his sort too, because they was like squeezing both hands. No, she, her hand was, Molly was holding her hand, and so she freed her hand, and then she started choking her. And then there was some blood scratched, something yeah. going on. Scratching out her eyes. Uh, yeah. So what happens to poor Vita? She thinks she that she loses brilliant. her voice. She lost her voice. Don't give it all away. She oh, lost her voice. I, mean, I, 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 I love the climax of this. <laughs> We're trying to get to the end. She loses her voice, right? Just to get out of her contract, though. Exactly. To get the more, the contract with this is good. She's just, good. Yeah, let's just think about this for a in second. In that instant, she thought of the, all of that being. You want to think of a great 
double-crossing, hard-boiled character. There's probably no greater character than Vita. In the moment where she's cheating with her mother's husband, and he's a, she's attacking her, trying to kill her, no less take away her voice, she's, still she's calculating <laughs> how she's going to get out of this contract so she can make $2,000 more a week. This is a great character, people. This is not a character to mess with. Vita is brilliant. She does everything right. She goes with her to the church. She says, I'm sorry you're getting divorced. She actually makes a big publicity stunt of it. Only to at the very end, what does she do? Monty to get to New York. York. She leaves the Monty. She gets a $2,500 a week contact. And she becomes, you know, nothing, nothing phases her. She's on. Right? She's made it. And what is, what, how does, what's the last term sign of the book? To hell with Vita. Yeah. And then, uh, what was it? Stinko. Let's get stinky. She does. Yeah. I mean, the good thing is that her and Bert get back together, and they seem to have a good relationship. But the last thing is, let's get stinky. Let's just get drunk, right? Like, basically, two parents come into terms with the fact that their daughter is a complete snake. Yeah. And they just have to live with it, like Treviso said, right? Yeah. It's like I like how it came she's in really full good. circle, though. And the interesting thing, too, is, you know, she has the wealth, she has the power, but we see that, you know, what I like about it is there's no one right or wrong. Like, Vita's doing what she thinks is right for her. And Treviso tries to tell that to Mildred. Mm -hmm. Stay away from her. You know, she's a self-centered snake. Yeah, he even calls her a bitch. And the thing is, it's interesting, is that there is no, like, Bert, we can think of him as, is Bert a bad character? Not really. You know, he comes around at the end. Is Wally a bad character? Not really. He's just doing what he's doing. I mean, is Vita a bad character? I mean, I think, yeah. I mean, we couldn't, I mean, we couldn't argue that. But Vita has her own idea about herself. Now, that's the story. Mildred Pierce. Does anyone die? Besides Ray. Poor Ray. (laughs) But Ray just dies of some rare, like, fever. Pimple on her face. Yeah, she's got this big pimple and she explodes. Poor Ray. I'm I'm with you. Poor Ray. But that's the only death. This isn't a kind of, like, gory red harvest we're counting the bodies, right? It's very interesting what Hollywood does with Mildred Pierce as a film. And this is a film in many ways more famous than the book. Um, Joan Crawford, directed by another um, Hungarian Jew, Michael Cortese, who actually came here in the 20s. And the influence of the Germans in the emergence of the film noir style cannot be understated. You have people like Fritz Lang, who did famous films like M, Metropolis. There's the film poster of Metropolis right there, which is a great German expressionist uh, film. I mean, you have Otto Preminger, who came here in the 20s. You have some really, um, Robert Siadomak, who did the film Killers, Leo, which was also remade by Tarkovsky. So you have this unbelievable influx between World War I and World War II of German directors and German thinkers and German artists, who in many ways influence the entire movement of noir and to some degree of hard-boiled, because I think the two are totally separate. The other thing, which is interesting. Has anyone ever seen The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari? No? 
Where have you guys been? What rocks have you been living under? Have you ever seen Fritz Lang's M? No. Metropolis? No. Film is the greatest single art in the world. You need to see these things. They're brilliant. And even though they're black and white, I promise you, you'll like them. <laughs> but for a second, Fritz Lang made two of the greatest films ever. One of them might be considered the first gangster film ever made, and that's Fritz Lang's M, which actually features, it's a story about a man who abducts, he's a serial killer. He abducts and kills children. And this is made in like 1929, and it's freely available on the Internet Archive. Well, what happens is, this German kind of city is looking for this serial killer. What happens is you get this underground, this German underground, who's kind of like your first gangsters in film looking for them as well as the police as well as the civil and this kind of underground world comes and it's kind of a very interesting early representation of gangsters particularly in Germany but what's even more fascinating about M and about Metropolis and the cabinet of Dr. Caligari is the point of view the perspective of the cabinet of Dr. Caligari which is this fascinating is basically the entire sets are these like houses set askew and it's basically about this woman who and this man who are running around this kind of alternative universe. And you have this kind of really creepy story with this really kind of claustrophobic but beautiful black and white infrastructure city, only to find out that this is a tale being told by an inmate from an inmate's perspective in an insane asylum. So the entire movie is actually this internalization, this internal monologue of an insane man. And so it's this really fascinating what you would call expressionistic approach to narrative. And expressionism as a term is not necessarily kind of realistic or kind of objective. It's very much based in a person's subjective look. Kind of like we saw with Double Indemnity, right? With Walter Neff. He's telling the story of his kind of, of the murder. Right? And that's his point of view. It doesn't tell us everything we need to know about Phyllis Dietrichson, etc. So, let's take a look at this. It's going to be fun. We're going to look. Who wants to get those? See those two light switches behind you, Leo? Put the, those up, and then the other one, see that? We don't want to be in total darkness. So, pull that up. Good. Okay. So, what we're going to do here is, and I have, remind me to remind you, we're going to look at the midterm. Well, we got plenty of time. But I also want to remind you who came in late, we have an essay to read before the midterm. Paul Schrader's Notes on Film, recommended by Paul Bond, but I'll remind that of a second. One of the things, Mildred Pierce was actually made into a song by Sonic Youth. Has anyone ever heard of Sonic Youth? Okay, at least we have some cultural connection again. Sonic Youth made a song called Mildred Pierce. I'm going to play it for you real quick. Is similar to Memphis and songs?
my ending part of that's my favorite. That pure scream. Sonic Youth, post-punk, kind of, you know, also a very art-influenced band. Kim Gordon was not only a musician, she was also an artist, and she was fascinated by the celebrity culture. And you see, who are they paying homage to on Hollywood? John Crawford. John Crawford. John Crawford. <laughs> Joan Crawford. Who in many ways becomes to embody the idea of Mildred Pierce. More than the novel, as we talked about, this figure of Joan Crawford and this idea of her kind of insane performance in this film. So let's turn a little bit to this insanely brilliant performance in Joan Crawford. And this was actually turned, I was turned on to this by the great Maureen. I was going to put that, but then I saw she, uh, she had already put yeah, So this is awesome. Let's take a look at this for a second. This is when Vida finds out, or finally gets the check, you know, the check that she had worked on. You know, it's kind of different. We never see this scene in the book. But the basic idea is she'd gotten the check from the blackmail for the family, the director's wife. And this is what happens. This is what ensues afterwards. I'm sorry this had to happen. Sorry for the boy. He seemed very nice. Oh, Ted's all right, really. <laughs> Did you see the look on his face when we told him he was going to be a father? <laughs> I wish you wouldn't joke about it. Mother, you're a scream. Really, you are. The next thing I know, you'll be knitting little garments. I don't see anything so ridiculous about that. <laughs> if I were you, I'd save myself the trouble. You're not going to have a baby? At this stage, it's a matter of opinion. And in my opinion, I'm going to have a baby. I can always be mistaken. How could you do such a thing? How could you? I got the money, didn't I? Oh, I see. I'll have to give Wally part of it to keep him quiet, but there's enough left for me. Money. That's what you live for, isn't it? You'd do anything for money, wouldn't you? Even blackmail. Oh, grow up. I've never denied you anything. Anything money could buy, I've given you. But that wasn't enough, was it? All right, Peter, from now on, things are going to be different. I'll say they're going to be different. Why do you think I went to all this trouble? Why do you think I want money so badly? All right, why? Are you sure you want to know? Yes. Then I'll tell you. With this money, I can get away from you. Vida. From you and your chickens and your pies and your kitchens and everything that smells of grease. I can get away from this shack with its cheap furniture and this town and its dollar days and its women that wear uniforms and its men that wear overalls. Vida, I think I'm really seeing you for the first time in my life and you're cheap and horrible. You think just because you made a little money you can get a new hairdo and some expensive clothes and turn yourself into a lady. But you can't. Because you'll never be anything but a common frump whose father lived over a grocery store and whose mother took in washing. With this money, I can get away from every rotten, stinking thing that makes me think of this place or you. Vida! Not on your life! I said give it to me! Get out, Vita. Get your things out of this house right now before I throw them into the street and you with them. Get out before I kill you. I think what Sonic Youth is trying to say is what a badass Joan Crawford is. Like, how would you want her to be your mom with those steely eyes being like, get out or I'll kill you? I mean, there's this intense relationship between Vita and... Mildred Pierce in that film. And it's not religious to the book, as you need. There was no point at which she named him Chet. 
and the ripping up the check. That never happened. Mildred Pierce never saw the check in the book. But that moment in which you get that sense of Vita's sense of social class and her idea of kind of feeling very much above and superior to the working girl mentality of Joan Crawford or Mildred Pierce here is quite brilliant. But the film is interesting, particularly in the relationship of, of our class, for a lot of reasons. Not only for this kind of great moment, but let's, I'm going to actually go to the DVD and we're going to look at the first kind of five or six minutes of this film. And I want you, I want to talk about this when we're done. So let's, let's just sit back and enjoy a film that I really recommend you watch in its entirety. Mildred Pierce, especially now that you've read the book. It's a brilliant film. Um, well worth your time. But here's the beginning. You guys hear it in the back? This is how it starts. Mildred. Who is that? Monty. your mind, lady. You know what I think? I think maybe you had an idea you'd take a swim. That's what I think. Leave me alone. You take a swim, I'd have to take a swim. Is that fair? Just because you feel like bumping yourself off, I gotta get pneumonia. Never thought about that, did you? Okay. Think about it. Go on, beat it now. Go on home before we both take a swim. Inside and 
about buying this joint was the smartest move I ever made. Anyone know who that is? Wait. Who? Wally. Wally. Yeah. Look at these joints, these restaurants. Aren't they majestic? Entertainment, the smoke. Strictly business, see? I mean, it might just as well have been you selling me out. You can't expect it. What do you look at me like that for? You can talk your way out of anything, can't you, Wally? You're good at that. In my business, you have to be. Only right now, I'd rather talk myself into something. You know what I mean? Still trying, huh? It's a habit. I've been trying once a week since we were kids. Twice a week. <laughs> okay, twice. Anyhow, I'm still drawing blanks. Hey, you never used to drink it straight like that. I've learned how these last few months. I've learned a lot of things. Like for instance. <laughs> like for instance, that's rotten liquor. <laughs> There's better stuff to drink at the beach house, Wally. Is that a dare? Could be. All right. I'll take it. You know, I like good stuff. Maybe this is my lucky day. Maybe. Come in. How about your husband? Is he, uh, getting broad-minded all of a sudden? Monty isn't here. Besides, you can talk your way out of anything, can't you? Oh, I, I get by all right. You keep saying that. Do I? Yeah. Nervous, Wally? No, no, cold. Temporarily. Isn't this more comfortable? Huh? Yeah, I, I guess so, but... Uh, What's the matter? Nothing. You don't seem very happy here. Oh, I'm, I'm happy, believe me. Inside, my heart is singing. <laughs> That's pretty corny, Wally. Yeah, well, I'm a corny guy, but I'm smart, too. I wonder about things. What things? Well, for instance, I wonder why you brought me here tonight. I mean, all of a sudden, boom. Husband gone, soft lights, quiet room. Opportunity. Why? Maybe I find you irresistible, Wally. Yeah. You know, you make me shiver, Mildred. You was here. You make love so nicely, Wally. You always have. You know, Mildred, all my life when I wanted something, I've gone after it. I get it, too. May take me a little time, okay, but I get what I want. Do you? Must be nice. Yeah. It is. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I feel sticky. I think I'd better change my dress. Yeah? Yeah, sure, Mildred. It's a good idea. I'll, uh, I'll only be a minute. Leave the door open so we can talk. I like to hear you talk. Yeah? So do I. Something about the sound of my own voice that fascinates me. You know, I'm glad you didn't get sore at me the way I took you over the hurdles, Mildred. I didn't mean to cut up your business the way I did. I just got started and couldn't stop. I can't help myself. I see an angle right away, I start cutting myself a piece of throat. It's an instinct. With me being smart's a disease, know what I mean? Hey, say something. This one-sided conversation is beginning to bore me. 
we'll keep watching, but is this pretty different from the book? So different. Okay. <laughs> shot out of a cannon. Get that coming out of the window? No, I cut myself shaving. All right, get going, smart guy. You need some fixing. Oh, brother, I'm so smart as a disease. All right, go ahead. So we're going to go ahead a little bit. So that's Vita. Yeah, here we go. Is it like a flashback? Of the, uh, yeah. Okay. We're going to have to so check this out. So please finally come back to... Mildred, and here we are. Mom is just as funny. It's a, it's a Roman for you. Yeah. Uh, Joe, what you got? This is Mrs. Pierce. I mean Berrigan. Which is it, Pierce or Berrigan? Make up your mind. Mildred Pierce Berrigan. Hey, we'll her in. Right over there, please. Mrs. Berrigan just came in. Sit down, he'll be right with you. Look, I bruise easy. 
Joe's talking. Yeah? I had a caller. Well, what is this, a class reunion? Looks like it. I'll have a tough time talking my way out of this. Keep moving. All right, all right. you now. Now you can talk. Inspector Peterson, this is Berrigan. How do you do, Mrs. Berrigan? How do you do? Won't you sit down? Sorry about your husband. Must be a shock to you. Well, I... I'm afraid I... You see, the fact of the matter is, Mrs. Berrigan, we don't need you. You don't need me? I don't know how to apologize for bringing you down here for nothing, but you understand. We had to be sure. Well, now we are sure. Aren't you going to ask me questions? I thought you would ask me questions. I know, Mrs. Berrigan. Everybody thinks that detectives do nothing but ask questions. But detectives have souls, same as anyone else. Cigarette? Go ahead. It's all right. You know, Mrs. Berrigan, being a detective is like, well, like making an automobile. You just take all the pieces and put them together one by one. First thing you know, you got an automobile. Or a murderer. And we got it. Oh, you're in the clear, Mrs. Berrigan. Case is on ice. Oh, you can go now. All right, men. Could you... Would you tell me who... Who did it? Sure. You're entitled to know. No. No. Yes. He did it. Your first husband. Pierce. No, Bert, I won't let you do this. 
What about Wally Fay? How do you know he didn't do it? Fay had no motive. This man had. You see, Mrs. Barrigan, we start out with nothing. Just a corpse, if you'll pardon the expression. Okay. We look at the corpse and we say, why? What was the reason? And when we find the reason, we find the man that made the corpse. In this case, him. Come on. Tell you he didn't do it. I know he didn't. Do you? The murder was committed with this. You know who it belongs to? No, I don't know. Guido. It belongs to Pierce. That's fact number one. Fact number two, he doesn't deny killing Barry. He seems to think it was a good idea. And if there's one thing we know from experience, it's that an innocent man always denies the crime. Loud and often. Pierce doesn't. So, do you blame us for feeling fairly confident that he's the man who put four shots out of six into Barrigan? But he didn't. He couldn't. He's too gentle and kind. Okay, he's kind and gentle. He's wonderful. But if he's so wonderful, Mrs. Barrigan, why did you divorce him? Because I was wrong. It's taken me four years to find that out. But now I know I was wrong. I see. Four years ago, he was in the real estate business, wasn't he? Yes. He and Wally Faber were partners. For a long time, they made good money. They built a lot of houses. But suddenly, everybody stopped buying. The boom was over. Yes. And one day, they split up. Wally was in, and Bert was out. They weren't partners anymore. Where are we now? Back at the beginning. Of the we're week. at the beginning. That's okay. So what happened? What happened the first... 20 minutes of this film. What is it doing? What's Wait, happening? Um, instead of completely years, changing the ending. What's that? Instead of 10 um, Good years, point. Instead of 10 years or 11, it's four. Perfect. What else happened? Monty's dead. Monty's dead. She doesn't marry Bird again. <coughs> she doesn't marry Bird again, right? Well, they don't she get back together, at least to at this point. To, uh, and what's his face? Do we have any him. murders? No. no. We have any detectives? This whole hard-boiled film noir, all the all the shadows, all the listen, Dame, you know, <laughs> don't you jump off there? That means we'll both have to take a bath tonight. I don't want to take a bath. Go get on your way, right? I mean, this beautiful kind of dialogue. Fact is, one of the uncredited writers for Mildred Pierce, the film, is William Faulkner, a name that's come up again and again. One of the classics of American lit. He actually was one of the authors or screenwriters who was uncredited. What else? What else do you make of this beginning? She kind of framed Wally. She framed Wally. Yeah, that's pretty to insane, get back right? At him for like, taking a business. For I taking a business. So who killed Mildred. Monty? Mildred. Mildred. Well, it'd be interesting to watch the movie and find out. But what's interesting uh, is okay. the whole entire know. film from minute twenty, just up until the end, models the book pretty closely. Mildred Pierce becomes a tycoon. More than just having three stories and being somewhat wealthy, she becomes a tycoon. The same relationship with Veda as we saw early on. But it's interesting that they quickly turn this film into a noir. And more than that, a murder detective story. Does this remind you, the flashback, of anything else? Double indemnity. Double indemnity, right? It's the exact same model. Walter Neff gets on the dictaphone and tells a story. Now, Mildred Pierce sitting in the detective office tells her story. This flashback. The other thing is, rather than it being from the third person perspective, 
right? Kind of third-person omniscient where we can even see what Mildred is thinking. Whose perspective is this narrative going to be from? Mildred's, almost entirely. So we're going to get Mildred's story, which is very similar to getting Walter Neff's story in Double Indemnity. So it's very interesting how what they did with Mildred Pierce is they took it from kind of a psychological drama, in some ways a melodrama, and they converted it into one of the great film noirs of the period. And what's interesting is, you know, you don't have to stretch too far to imagine James M. Cain's novels as noirs, right? I mean, there's a lot of that element. We can talk about Veda as the femme fatale, the double cross. But what's interesting is Hollywood felt compelled to put in this murder scene, which is interesting because one of the reasons they argue that Mildred Pierce ends the way it does with a murder is unlike the book, they couldn't have anyone who was a morally questionable character live. So you couldn't have this moral ambiguity where Monty and Veda, two kind of very despicable characters, actually do quite well. Like they're the ones who ride off into the sunset and are rewarded for being complete scum. Whereas in this, the kind of the film censorship said you basically can't have Monty survive. So in many ways, it was actually a murder mystery in some ways because of the way in which the censorship board looked at it. And imagine like you couldn't have this ambiguous ending where one of these people, right? It was actually something that, you know, in terms of moral conditions couldn't be tolerated. So it's kind of a fascinating uh, kind of twist on how the murder itself, you know, the idea of murdering someone who's immoral may not necessarily be immoral, the whole bigger question. So that's actually how um, Mildred Pierce in the film looks. And I'm going to recommend it. Um, I'm going to lend it to you because you asked it, so you can borrow it. But feel free to lend it around. I highly recommend. Get your hands on Mildred Pierce. Watch it. It's a great film. Joan Crawford gives, I mean, she earns every bit of this best actress. She is unbelievably good in this. You saw bits of it already. But she not only not only does the camera look, you see how she glows? Now then the face looks at her. You see how white her face is? And how it glows in the camera? And how black and white, rather than being about an old film, is actually quite a stupendous aesthetic. Everything looks gorgeous. The shadows, the smoke, the people. I mean, black and white film, in some ways, is an aesthetic that we've lost to some degree. And the aesthetic itself is absolutely brilliant. And you know, I, sometimes I'm, you know, not to say, you know, when you see a black and white film, it has to be done quite well. But, you know, these films of that noir period from the early 40s to about 58 really do. I mean, aesthetically, you can put them up against just about any film ever made. And, you know, think about that scene with the spiral staircase. That shot, that simple shot in Mildred Pierce when he's looking up that staircase and you're watching him go up. That's a gorgeous shot. And there's just filled with them. You know, just throwaway shot after throwaway shot in the first 20 minutes of Mildred Pierce. And this is just gorgeous filmmaking. It's not only just great narrative, it's not only just compelling story, it's really brilliant filmmaking. Hence, we start to get this tension between novels and films from the 20s up and until today, right? A lot of times, a novel won't be on the New York's bestseller list until the film comes out. For example, Ask the Dust. 
No one was reading After Dust until in 2006, Selma Hayek was in a film version of it, or Colin Farrell, or is that the other one? And then it was on the New York bestseller list. So it's interesting how much now the notion of film, and now even TV to some degree, dictates what we read and how we read it. And one of the things I think is nice that all of you haven't seen these films is you'll come to the novels first. And I think the films, in many ways, are oftentimes, as you see, if you saw the film Mildred Pierce, it'd be great if you're like, no, I'm just going to watch the film version. <laughs> you'd be talking in class rather than reading the book. You'd be like, yeah, you remember when like Monty gets murdered? <laughs> what? What, what version of the book are you reading? You know, is, is that the, you know, the picture book? What are you reading? I mean, you have no, like a lot of times, there's no relationship between the movie and the book for a lot of these. You know, Double Indemnity, often. Radically different ending. Double Indemnity ends when they're both on a freighter and they jump into shark-infested waters. That's how it ends. <laughs> it's a, I mean, good luck reading, watching the film in order to kind of, you know, get the idea of the... In, in many ways, the films are works in and of themselves. Yes? Uh, Leo. I remember I had a pretty severe problem like that when... Uh, I was younger and they watched Lord of the Rings and they really loved it and after I read the book and Hobbit and Silmarillion and everything and I was so excited about this world uh, and I kind of remade it in my head. It was it was a long process. Yeah. I kind of remade it in my head and especially Silmarillion, a movie that you know, wasn't uh, kind of made back then yeah. and still didn't make right now. So I kind of uh, resort the idea of this movie and uh yeah. and you were able to imagine it. I mean and there's something really powerful to me about I mean I'm not saying that film I mean I love film and film and novels usually people say the book was better than the film that's not always the case I mean there have been a lot of great films made of book I would argue that I like Stephen King but I'd argue The Shining is a better movie than it is a book I mean it is a brilliant film it's a good book, but it's a brilliant film. Mm -hmm. So there's an example where you know Stanley Kubrick takes his own liberties with a with a book, but actually makes it better. But I think what we have to start understanding is that a text like a book versus a film, they're different texts, and oftentimes that film is not just the book brought to film because there's certain things from a book you can't bring to film. It's just impossible. The media are too different. And so you have to start understanding as film and text as part of a larger cultural milieu of media. But they can never be an easy translation, just like from one language to another. When you speak one language and try and translate it to another, there's things you're obviously going to miss. There's intonations, there's colloquialisms, there's phrases. There's a cultural kind of relationship to language that can't come from one language to another cleanly. Well, same when you move a book to a film. It's not a clean transition. Okay, and speaking of clean transitions, let's actually, for the last 10 minutes, look at what you should expect for the midterm. Um, I'm gonna read, and could you tell, no, the only people who Jillian. aren't here are <coughs> Jess and Jillian. Mm -hmm. You gonna see Jillian? Let her know this as much. Is anyone gonna see Jesse? No, okay, He's I'll send senior. him an email. <laughs> What's that? He's a senior. Yeah, he might be gone. Okay, so, a couple of things, first. There is a article in the comments of my last blog post, Hard Boiled Week, 
seven, I think it's on my blog, Baba Tuesdays, that Paul um, Bond left. And this is Schrader article. Get it and read it. It will be referenced on the midterm and it will be a frame. I'll be pulling from this to frame one of your essay questions. So get it and read it, okay? Did you now, see that timeline he put up? Yeah, a timeline like he put up is brilliant. Yeah. And we should add to it. I got actually I haven't had time. But I am I'm gonna get to it. He's Paul Bond's been amazing. He's really good. And I someone asked me who's Paul Bond. If you don't know who Paul Bond is, you're not reading the blogs and commenting. He's basically a part of this I class. Know, he just happens to be in just someone different part of the pond. Yeah, he's actually he was part of a DS one oh six class I taught. He's just amazing. So now here's a good example of what the midterm's gonna be like. For example, in what year did the earthquake and acid dust take place? <laughs> what year? 1933. 1933. One. What was it? Three. 33. I will not ask you a question like this. It was like, what? <laughs> no. 1931. It happened in 33. But remember all these words that we were looking up? Remember these terms that we've... I'm going to be looking that you understand this. This is one I did talk about in class. The Long Beach earthquake of 33. It was a 6.5. That's uh, where that whole kind of dream vision happened. I won't ask you, the questions that are follow are going to be more like I'm going to ask you, but just get ready. I'm going to be look that you've been reading for detail. Yeah. Was the, uh, it was the December 31st, 1931, like the flooding in LA, was that important? I looked it up, but I couldn't find it. I couldn't one. find a historical correlation for that either. Like That's right. Like the worst flooding ever. And I couldn't find one either. So, Okay, more to the point. How old was Mildred Pierce when she got pregnant with Veda? 17. 17, right? I'll ask some questions like this. Most of the questions are going to be like this. What is existentialism? We talked about it. What is it? doesn't have to be a kind of complete discussion, but what does it mean? It's like a philosophy of um, everything's important when you're existing. Yeah, and from your point of view, which gets to the sense of expression. And if you don't know what existentialism is, we talked about it not only with the Naramore, but with Asta Dust, and as a larger philosophy for Noir. Look it up. Start thinking about it, you know? What does it mean? Are there good definitions out there? Can you come to terms with something like that? That will show up again, I promise you. Who wrote and directed Miller's Crossing? The Coen brothers, right? Who co-wrote Double Indemnity with Billy Wilder? James Nope. He wrote the novel. Falcon? Nope. I don't know We talked about it a couple of times. Raymond Chandler. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Now I do remember. So good. I'm glad you guys are feeling the pain right now. Okay. <laughs> Next part, identification. There's going to be 20 questions like this. They're going to be worth 20 points. So you can get them all wrong. And you won't get them all right, but you can get them all wrong and still get an 80 in the midterm. Here, identification. As he smoked his legs stretched out in front of him, he noticed a grasshopper walk along the ground and up into his woolen sock. What's that from? That's the dust. In our time. In our time? What book? What story? Big Two Hearted River. Yeah, two Disco. The Big Two Hearted River. Who wrote it? Hemingway. Hemingway. Good. So would you want us to write And then what would you say, what's the significance of this passage? It represented um, how uh, things left, or uh, how things came left. Yeah, what do, we, what do we talk about a lot within our time? How Lost. Was going to end. What it was going it's to end? Not it's not fun anymore. What is the kind of the post-war moment, right? Kind of recovering from World War One, And so what he talks about here, remember, there's a particular moment he says, they were all black. They were not the big grasshoppers with yellow and black or red. 
These were just ordinary hoppers, but all sooty black in color. Nick was wondering about them as he walked without reality thinking about them. Now, as he watched a black hopper that was nibbling at the wool of his sock, with his forwarding lip, he realized that they had all turned black from living in the burned-over land, right? He realized that the fire must have come the year before, but the grasshoppers were all black now. He wondered how long they would stay that way. How could we read that? What might this, the grasshopper symbolize? The scars of the war, yeah. right? The scars of the soldiers. So that's a very, it doesn't have to be an elaborate reading, but just how does this quote relate back to things we've talked about in the book? Just a quick kind of discussion of how the quote relates to the themes in the books. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Good. Now finally, there's going to be an essay. And here's an example essay. It will be, be along these lines. I've been very interested, as you know, in the question of how the books relate to the cultural moment, whether that be Prohibition, whether that be World War I, whether that be um, the stock market crash, whether that be the Depression, or even World War II, right? Double indemnity. So here's the question. According to Nairmore, who wrote, um, and if you haven't, you know, Keep Nairmore, I'm not going to ask you specifics about Nairmore, but keep the idea of what he argue, he's arguing noir is in your mind. Keep it in your mind. And that's going to really also be where this essay from Schrader will very much help. It's a lot clearer than Nairmore. So um, definitely look at that too. But here's an example of an essay. According to Nairmore, the idea of noir is not so much a genre, style, or aesthetic as it is an idea. An international intellectual discourse about a series of films and novels of a particular period in history, right? That's film noir from 1940 roughly up until about 58. It's got a very specific period. Discuss how at least three texts, and you can include films, we have discussed thus far include, uh, far, reflect large, I'm sorry, this is not, <laughs> I should, I'll be sure to, reflect larger intellectual and cultural ideas of these times. So, for example, what might Mildred Pierce reflect about its time? The hard, uh, hardship of the Great Depression. Hardship of the Great Depression, right? A particular position of women in that moment. Particular elements from that book that you could talk What might in our time reflect? Post-war depression, post-traumatic syndrome, these, these soldiers coming home. What might Ask the Dust reflect? Prohibition. Prohibition? No. Ask the Dust? Oh, I'm talking about Red Harvest. Red Harvest, perfect. Prohibition, ask the dust. Yeah. Inner conflict. Yeah, inner conflict, the yeah. whole question of the depression. The also, the issue of existentialism arises there, right? Mm -hmm. Interesting point. We talked about H.L. Mencken as Hack, who, what was his name, Hackmuth? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. H.L. Mencken, James M. Came worked and wrote for the American Mercury, which was run by H.L. Mencken. So H.L. Mencken actually had his finger on a lot of these different writers, both as mentoring, whether it be, um, I don't know if you really mentioned Hemingway, but definitely Kane and definitely Fonte, which is very interesting to me. You know what I mean? That's H.L. Mencken, and he was a figure of some importance at that time. And what's another one? For example, Double Indemnity. What might that be reflecting back on? Talked a couple of things, right? How does the whole noir film reflect back on what? Schrader's going to be great for this. Schrader's brilliant for contextualizing it. That's why I'm telling you to read it. But Gender. Gender. Stanwick, we could talk about the femme fatale, right? 
the position of women and you could say I'm going to write about the position of women in any particular novel over these three right you could also talk about World War II in Double Indemnity right that came out in 1944 we talked about the question of the Holocaust right and how the whole idea where is Billy Wilder from German. he's a German he's a German director right and how maybe some of these film noirs are reflections of what's happening in the world. Yeah. Sarah. Are you going to want us to know the publication dates? You know, I think it's very useful to know the publication dates, yes. So it is important because I'm really thinking about these as moments of these times. So if you say, we're going to talk about double indemnity in relationship to World War One, that's not going to work, right? And date is important there. You know, when did In Our Time come out? 44. Uh, no, In Our Time? Um, was it 25? Yeah, I was about to say 25. When did Red Harvest come out? Uh, no, nope. 28. When did uh, when did uh, Ask the Dust come out? 39. When did um, Mildred Pierce come out? 41. 41. Double Indemnity was made 44. in 44. And Miller's Crossing, which will be the only one. When was that made? 93. 93. I think it was either 93 or 91. I think it was 93. I think you're right. thing about Miller's Crossing is, is it a kind of official noir? No. no. It's a reflection back. It's what people refer to as a neo-noir. You know, noir has become a very important kind of genre or style or idea after the fact. And so something like Miller's Crossing really is building on writers like um, Hammett from The Red Harvest or even from the glass key uh, so it's kind of for me it's an interesting kind of Hollywood interpretation of the noir in, in the 90s and that keeps on going on if I ask you anything about Miller's Crossing it will really be probably from the identification or from the um, uh, short answer but it really won't the essay feel free to leave that out if you're not comfortable contextualizing it historically does that make sense because it is made in 93 any other text we're missing no, I think that's it, right? Nairmore. Keep Nairmore in, but I even think um, you might, what might take you a bit further is Schrader. And what, look how it's very, very quick. And what Schrader does very nicely is he breaks down what he thinks are the four basic influences for noir. And one of them is this hard-boiled trans, the hard-boiled tradition. So don't, and let me just be clear here. In my comments, do you know how you download a link? Right-click save it as. You're good. Right? And if you can't do that, then get off Explorer and do it from Chrome or Firefox. Explorer is, is not good. You really didn't. Okay, any more questions? <laughs> they have a commercial. Like yeah. that's how, that's so the midterm is going to be the normal class line? Yes, the midterm is going to be the normal. It's going to be an hour and 15 minutes. Um, that's why the essay doesn't have to be a full-blown essay. I want to see your ideas. <coughs> blue books, right? Bring them. Bring a blue book. On Thursday. Has anyone seen a blue book? You go to the bookstore, there's going to be, get a couple of blue books. They're like a blue book you write in. And that's a book where you'll actually write your midterm in and you'll hand it to me. Have you ever had them? No. If you haven't, buy some extras for someone. I'll get a couple just in case you run into problems. I'll have some extras for you, okay? But go to the bookstore. They're like 15, 15 what are they, 20 cents, a dollar? Yeah. I don't know what they are. It's like 20 cents. 20 cents. It's $25. Cheap. Yeah. They're not $100, I promise. <laughs> All right, everybody, have a great break. Enjoy yourself. Okay, let me give you Mildred Pierce.
That's one. Ooh, even the seer.